0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to History Hit. Happy New Year. 2019. Time is flying. What a year we've got for you in store at Team History Hit. We've got more wonderful podcasts. HistoryHit.tv, the world's best digital history channel, is going to go from strength to strength. We've got the 75th anniversary of D Day. We've got the 80th anniversary of the outbreak of the Second World War. We've got the 100th anniversary of the signing of the infamous Treaty of Versailles. Was it a disastrous piece of statecraft that guaranteed that Europe be plunged into another more terrible war within the lifetime of its signatories? Or was it an impressive but ultimately flawed attempt to solve as gigantic a set of problems as has ever faced diplomats and politicians? Find out here on the pod obvious place to do it. So years ending 19, what else we got? We got the Jacobite Uprising of 1719, one of my favorites It's got Spanish regular forces landing in Scotland with, to so combine with the Jacobites to do battle with the British army that was then serving the Hanoverian kings of Britain. That was a good, that was a, a important if now forgotten episode in the Jacobite Uprisings. 1619, you get the first ever representative, you get the first ever representative assembly in North America. You get the House of Burgesses meeting for the first time in Jamestown, Virginia, and less than a month later, you get the first African slaves brought to North America by an English slave trader. So you get the birth of a representative political tradition and the birth of slavery all within a month, and a great gift to those writing history today. In 1819, 200 years ago, Florida is ceded by the Spanish, to the Americans. There's a massacre of the British army. The infamous Peterloo massacre occurs when British troops and militiamen charge into a crowd that were demanding political representation and electoral reform. And the British established a trading post at Singapore. I wonder what people will look back and say about 2019. The mind boggles. You can look back on more than just years ending 19 at historyhit.tv. It's our new digital history channel. It works like Netflix, but just for history lovers. If you go on there and use the code POD3, you get the first 30 days for free. Then you get the next month for just one pound, euro or dollar for the next three months. So you're looking at about four months of access to our wonderful new history channel, ...for just three pound, euros or dollars. So that's POD3, P-O-D-3. Please go and check that out. For this podcast, get the year started on an extraordinary note. I have saved this one for you. This is a real treat. This is an interview with Sir Cedric Delves and Danny West. Sir Cedric left the British Army as a Lieutenant General. During his varied career, he served with distinction in the SAS, British Special Forces and was given a distinguished service order, a DSO, in the Falklands War. Now, if you want to treat yourself, go onto the internet, go to wikipedia.com, and Google Cedric Dells, and read the citation for his DSO. It is pretty remarkable. His wartime service in the Falklands was extraordinary, as a squadron commander, a young squadron commander in the SAS. He has recently published a book called Across an Angry Sea, the SAS in the Falklands War. I very, very much recommend that you buy this book. It is completely remarkable. I got an email out of the blue from Sir Cedric offering to do an exclusive interview with History Hit. Happy to talk about any military events that happened in and around the Falklands archipelago during the war. He said his sergeant from the time, Danny West, would be joining us and I jumped at the chance. It was an extraordinary opportunity to talk to two men who have never talked in public about their experiences in the Falklands War before. This conversation could have gone on for several days. We managed to get it down to two episodes of the podcast. The other one will be going out tomorrow. This one, the first episode, as you'll hear, deals with finding out the war broke out and going down and conducting first operations on South Georgia, an island that is remote even by the standards of the Falklands archipelago. Then tomorrow you'll hear some of their recollections about the rest of the war. Enjoy.
1: I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and
2: liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world.
0: Thank you both very much for coming on the podcast I should probably ask you, for every time I talk to a Falklands restaurant I should start by saying had you ever given a moment's thought to the Falkland Islands before you were told you were deploying there?
2: No idea where they were In fact they sounded like they came. They were somewhere in Scotland but I knew that wasn't true and I had to be told where they were on, on the map and I thought crikey that's a long way away Well it is a long way away, I'm not sure exactly how far but it's got to be about Twelve thousand miles. Never got to say. I think I vaguely knew where they were.
0: When you heard the news that you were going to be fighting a conventional, I mean, I, you know, when, I'm not going to talk about what you'd been doing before in Arthur Falklands, mm. but, but in the 1980s, um, and and 90s, was a perception that Western special forces would probably be fighting different kinds of war. When when you heard that you'd be fighting a, dare I call it, a, con- a conventional war against a a, a well matched uniformed opposition did that, did that come as a did that come as a surprise and, and do you feel you were prepared for that
2: well we'd like to think that we're prepared for most things, but i don't think it entered our head that we are about to enter into a a, a conflict like like it panned out to be and all the way down there, there were um, negotiations going on in America with uh, General Haig, who was very keen to um, call a truce here in in the Falklands. But of course, we were concerned that if he did that, then war. <laughs> well, there was two things. There was two things, really. If he, if he did that, we wouldn't have a war, as Cedric says. Also, they would hold on to whatever they had considered winning so far. I mean, they were holding the Falklands. So if there was a negotiation, they could say something, okay, we'll keep this bit and you can have that bit but um, that was never on the cards. That was not on the menu when they had to leave. And to get them out of there, it had to be some sort of conventional conflict. But I don't think we'd actually work that out at this stage. No, it didn't really work like that.
1: Um, As I recall it, there's the the, the business of the scrap metal men. Didn't really take that very seriously. There seemed to be a bit of fuss over nothing. Do
0: you remember? Yeah, that's, the, that's the, the chaps who landed on South Georgia
1: without, without a license and started dismantling Leith, I think it was. They had um,
2: huge, huge phosphor bronze propellers that apparently are worth a fortune and they'd been left there by whalers.
1: Well, and the whaling station was stuffed full of asbestos,
2: apparently, so it
1: wasn't very clever. Didn't really take that seriously. And then a short period later than that, we then find that the, uh, the islands had been invaded and it was incensed. And there was just a natural assumption we just made a natural assumption that you know there there would be well there's going to be some operation to try and sort of rectify that we guessed, and um that we would be part of it that just didn't cross across our minds that we wouldn't be part of it, but actually that, that's about as far as it went but precisely what we we're gonna do it weren't that clear, but something something would emerge and um in the way of these things we'd sort of try and find that that particular thing that will go you know help the special the uh, conventional force and
2: um, yes, we were planning on the way down, how we were going to get ashore. We were looking at people like um, your man, what was his name, who's buried there, um, how he got there. And... It sort of worked like this. So the crisis breaks and we just
1: assume we're going to be part of it. Mike Rose, who was the commanding officer at the time, is spinning around the place, talking to people, most particularly through Commando Commando brigade, Spent quite a bit of time down there, persuading people he... We were needed. In the meantime, his operations officer, Ian Crook, was getting on with stuff. And um, I think Ian was the one who just got us away. Uh, He had made some sort of arrangement that we would get down to Ascension Island and um, get on board something called an RFA. Um, It has a particular name, Fort Austin. And that was about it. And then... um,
0: So so you slightly invited yourselves to the party. Well, the
1: story goes that the prime minister, at a later date, went down to fleet headquarters at Northwood uh, to be briefed on on what was going on. I mean, it was a little bit later. And she discovered that the special forces, the SAS, in fact, I mean, the SAS had been deployed. And she asked this room of people, uh, who, who was it exactly authorize the deployment of the SAS? And there was a silence, apparently. So the story goes. That's a good story. And then a voice sort of pipes up at the back saying, uh, Prime Minister, I think the SES authorised themselves. <laughs> and that, that could well be right. But I do remember going in to see the commanding officer before went down to Bryce Norton to get the flight down to Ascension. And um, I know, it's in the book, but he was agitated about something. And I had to wait. And he got off the phone. He'd been talking to his wife, Angela. And the, the, he was, they, were at, <laughs> they were concerned about a carpet going into the mess. It was particularly busy carpet I mean, to disguise foot traffic which it did with sort of real vengeance um and it did go into the mess because once everything sort of starts you know you can't stop some institutional wheels from turning so this this carpet went in anyway pretty long story uh i said look I, you know he, he was going on about the carpet a bit and i said look i'm sorry i gotta go oh yeah i've got <laughs> gotta go yes of course he said yes because well, where you go then got as far as the door he said oh wait wait hang on a second you better um i better tell you what to do this is a true story But i tell you what to do. And he sort of paused. He said, "Um, got a notebook, (laughs) a pencil. I didn't answer that. And uh, he said, "Um, direct action. Well, that's the first thing on the regimental slide, which is sort of brief to uh, visitors. And so I knew what was likely to come next. And it did. And the next one was um, information reporting. I knew the third one was going to be a real problem because at the time, the third one was operating with indigenous forces, partisans. And of course, there weren't any down there. There were some penguins. And the population was, you know, under the control of the Argentinians. So I wonder what was going to come next. And you see, he was a bit puzzled as well. But then eventually got it. And that sort of mic raised away, his face lit up. And I said, yeah, I got it. He said, uh, specialist assistance to amphibious operations. said <laughs> <So, laughs> so, so, so with a grin. And thus, we went off to war with that. And that you know, that's what we went with.
0: What does direct action mean?
2: It means um coming close to the enemy and um and breaking stuff. Yes.
0: Mm. It's
1: it's uh it's the offend- yes, it's the it's everything from demolitions closing with um standoff attacks, all all this sort of breaking stuff, as opposed to the gathering of information stuff and so on. So it was it was that sort of thing. And then, as um, I would say, we got ourselves down to, to Ascension.
0: You were young men. You, you, this is what you joined for. You must have been incredibly exciting. We're still,
2: we're still young men.
0: Oh, I, I'm your prime of life, but I mean, you were ch- almost ch- children at that
2: point. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But an opportunity like this would arise you know, once every five lifetimes. It was, it was amazing. Maybe we just couldn't believe our luck.
0: And I'm sorry to ask the question all civvies ask, but did he not worry that someone would get killed and hurt?
2: Soldiers don't tend to worry about that sort of thing. You know, a soldier is more concerned about supporting the guy on the right and the left of him. Okay, it's it's a hazard that we have to put up with it. Now and again, people get hurt. But it's not something that is foremost in their mind. And when people say, oh, it's such a shame Tommy went down here and he got hurt down there. Tommy wasn't that worried about it. You know, so you shouldn't feel sorry for Tommy. That's what he gets paid for and that's what he's volunteered to do.
1: Yeah, I was struck by some of the um there was a wonderful piece of television made recently redigitizing old First World War films. I'm not sure you saw it. Um and there was a piece around the back, you know, people had gone through all that horror of the Western Front and that sort of thing, and they said, you know, wouldn't have missed it for anything. We went through similar, you know, we, you know there were some bad moments in this war, you know. We, we may make a few jokes in a moment and that sort of thing, but it was a hard war and we lost a lot of people. 21 people did not come back. Um, but, you know, you would ask every, any member of the squadron, they would say, wouldn't have missed it for anything.
0: And if they were
2: told that one in three of us wouldn't come back, they would still have gone to a man. Strange.
0: Now, we, can't, we won't talk about anything else. We just, we're to, we've agreed we'll talk about what happened inside the, um, the area of operations. Uh, what around the Falklands Archipelago, uh, when it became clear that you would be needed to take direct action, um, and what, what form did that take? Were you going to go in before the main amphibious assault or, or during, after?
1: Well, let me tell you how it unfolded, um, actually. So we get to Ascension... And we're we're instructed by Ian Crook really to get on Fort Austin, which we do, and then we sail off heading south. Um, we then hear that a task group has been formed to go down to South Georgia to take back South Georgia. It's a sort of quick win, low hanging fruit type thing, I should imagine. People think you can do this, and we were instructed to put the um, the mountain troop um, on board to assist that, uh, which we did. We met we met uh, Endurance who done very well down there and it had come away it was very well down there um, with a small detachment of Royal Marines, pretty brilliant. Um, so we put the manager on. they sailed off south, <laughs> leaving the rest of us behind. We weren't very happy about that, I'll tell you. And I, I wasn't concerned because the, you know, fragmented the squadron. You know, I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen, but it didn't sound like a good idea to spread across her, ourselves across the South Atlantic. And the rest of the task group was coming down and we've got an RV with her and replenish resupply at sea, it's called RAS, the Navy called it. we were starting to pick up Navy language as well. Um, so we are going to razz the rest of the task group a few days later. And Danny and I sort of talked about this and thought, there's an opportunity here to get the rest of us on it. And we, we did. We, we blagged our way effectively.
2: Hitch- hitchhiked our way down to the South Atlantic. We blagged our way onto this
1: operation.
0: So there was one squadron deployed. Yeah.
1: One, there's one squadron got away quick and fast, this D squadron. Our sister squadron, G squadron, who's best equipped for this type of stuff, incidentally, because they go every year to um, Norway and operate with the Royal Marines, uh, come in behind us, and they assume the advance force operation, the surveillance operation, and put eyes on all the settlements uh, around the Falklands, eventually. No, but they're, they're a couple of weeks behind us. Meanwhile, we've blagged our way into an operation and gone south.
0: So, so you, were, you were all going to South Georgia, not just one troop?
1: The whole lot were going to South Georgia.
0: And, and you were in command of, therefore, how many men? 66-ish.
1: Well, the group would be, yeah, the the group all up to all with the signals and so on, probably about 75, actually, probably-ish. You know?
0: When you got to South Georgia, what, what did you find there and what were you asked to do?
1: There was a land force commander of uh, a man called uh, Guy Sheridan Royal Marines, very good indeed, and we subordinated our, ourselves, then we together... Start developing a plan for it, and it has to be fairly generic. And it, you know, we we too um, decide it must start with a reconnaissance, so we can see exactly what we've got on our hands before we work out how to get them off the islands or defeat them. And there's a Royal Marine company available for that, so we're we're down there to having blagged our way in to assist on the advance force stuff to get the information, and then well, we'll depend on what we find, release the Marines to. Sort the problem out. That's it in broad, generic terms. It didn't work out that way, of course, because I mean, things intervene, weather most particularly.
0: And can I just ask how it works between you two? Because you are. Having these discussions are you? Is it fair to say you're thinking about What you're going to do when you get there Danny is it, is it, would it right to say that you were taking part In the discussions or are you thinking about Making sure the men are ready for whatever These guys cook up well, I think
2: it's both isn't it um, in, in fact we had a, a Headquarter element that involved Geordie Woods and we had The Sergeant Major Lawrence Gallagher Both of whom sadly are dead now Lawrence in the um, In the helicopter crash but we'd sit round usually over a beer or something like that if we could get a beer, and it's always good when we could. Locker, yeah. uh, and we'd you know we'd just bounce this off each other, and between you, me, and the gatepost, I don't think I've ever said said, said this to Cedric. But now and again, Lawrence used to go. Oh, <laughs> He was he was tying it off, you know, because Cedric, you know, he's thorough. If nothing else, and he'd just go round and round. Yeah, oh, yeah, but what if? What if? What if? What if? Let's just go and... <laughs> yeah, Let's, just... yeah, well, that you've got a plan, okay? We'll go with that. That's that's good, right? Well done, Cedric. That's fantastic. <laughs> let's go Yeah, but he, he obviously took it more seriously than we did because we were worried at the time that this guy General Haig was going to persuade somebody to. Um, to persuade the Argentinians off the island before we got there, and that would never have done, having made the trip. It's not that we were anxious, you know, to close with the enemy and and hurt him. It's it's not that at all. It's just that you train for a particular job, and here was an excellent opportunity to
0: exercise
2: our skill against his.
0: And and can I ask how uh, how it how it would differ if you were in a a Um, another unit a a regular army unit because you're 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 going down there you're confident the men under your command are some of the fittest most highly trained highly motivated men in in the british army Um, so so therefore does that make your job easier harder more different to to if you'd been in a a a, a, a normal infantry battalion
1: if i could perhaps have a go the first stab at that just recently um i was in conversation with helen Parr, who's written a book about the the uh, parish regiment and uh, and uh, i read her book you know we're going to have a conversation down at hay uh, which we did the other day and i was slightly concerned about it i sort of read a book and th- you know this really is the harsh realities of war. her book i mean you know this is it, it talks about you know the sort of the violence it employed and that sort of stuff and i thought shoot and you know the book i just read written is looks rose tinted by comparison but then i sort of reflected that actually we in some ways special forces are fortunate um, there, there is the yes. We do have to go behind the enemy lines, as in inverted commas, that sort of stuff, and there, there has its own demands. And if you get caught back there, you're you know, small in number, and the chances are it's not going to be very good for you. So it actually carries its its yeah. own sort of worries and hazards. But you know, we generally um, have to operate like this. We, we are small in number. We make a virtue of it, and you 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 choose as far as is practical your place as well as your time most certainly you should be choosing your time you you optimize the time against the place against the numbers and you mitigate your your s- small size in in these sorts of ways so in other words you have choices um if you're in the big battalions yeah. and your commander wants you to go
2: up that hill now mm-hmm. that's what you do yeah but yeah. well, it it it's, it's it surprises me really when you think of that, because we we take it for granted the way that we used to operate. I mean, everybody's got an opportunity to put his oar in, and if it makes sense, then people will listen to him. If it doesn't make sense, we'll tell him to wind his neck in. But in an infantry battalion, as Cedric says, you don't get that opportunity. You know, you just do as you're told. And
1: well, it, it gets close and grubby, it can, it? and it did for those battalions that went down there, sure. and they did really, really well. I mean. Uh,
0: yeah. Right, so talk to me, you you arrive off uh, South Georgia, to, I guess to right. tell me about the weather, the geography. Um, did the plan go out the window at first contact with the enemy, you know, the old cliche?
1: Yeah, absolutely it did. <laughs> uh, very dramatically, actually. Well, um, so you, we, there's a division of labour emerges. Uh, the, it appears the Argentina's in two places. They're still at Leith, the scrap Metal Men, and the Great Beacon, which is the sort of capital of South Georgia, if you like that's where the administrative centre is of the two grip vehicles is more important and there's no there's no argument we blagged our way in and the Marines will have grip vehicle and we all deal with Leith and so we started looking at Leith and how do you get ashore at Leith um there was two broad options you either sort of use the helicopter we made available to get on ashore and then move in from there or use the boats we didn't like the idea of the boats uh, we were always worried about the outboard motors they were old and worn I mean it may come as a surprise to people but you know they, they dated from the 60s um and more about that in a second, so we decided we would fly, and then you sort of look at how you 're going to do that. These were not night capable helicopters; they were just general helicopters, so you couldn 't fly into Stromness Bay. Everything was visible to Stromness Bay, so it would have to be outside of that, and the only place outside of that really where you could sensibly land could we tested the we produced um, an overlay to see what where the noise might reach out, um, pushed us back onto the Fortuna Glacier do not sound like a good idea, does it? Um, and nobody was very happy with that. Guy Gerardin, in particular, was a very accomplished climate, advised strongly about against going on to the Fortuna, and he, he he was right in a way, um, concentrating particularly on the difficulties of its so getting across it and crevasses and that sort of stuff. We were taking advice um, from others back in the UK who'd actually gone across it more recently, and we knew that Shackleton had done it. So we were sort of confident we could get across Endurance, to be fair, um, was advising don't do it. Not just crevasses. Um, Nick Barker, who was the captain of uh, Endurance, knew the area very well, and he was aware that we were in a bad, bad period for weather. And it was—he was normally volatile down there because it's pretty damned hostile at that time of year. And he was—he was just simply said, don't do it. Um, well, we did do it. Uh, and it took a while to get the troop onto the um, glacier. Which we did successfully, but not without a great deal of difficulty in appalling conditions. I mean, this is outside of gale force winds. This is the next scale up, whatever is the next one up. Power um, equipment force winds, huge winds. Anyway, we got them on.
0: Was there was there an abort option or or, or not?
1: Well, I suppose there would have been, but we were pressing on, weren't we? And we were determined to get on. Um, which we did.
0: So, so you landed lots of helicopters on on a glacier in a in a hurricane. Three,
1: three helicopters involved. There's a helicopter called Humphrey, and the Navy regard their um, helicopters as male, and the ships as female. So there's ribald stuff, as you can imagine. Um, anyway, Humphrey was uh, an anti-submarine warfare helicopter crewed by someone called a. Ian Stanley, who turned out to be a heroic man, um, and he would lead these helicopters. And he would, anyway. He led them up to the top of the the uh, Fortuna Glasser, in, in appalling conditions, sort of dropped off the troop. And there's a story attached to that as well. But um, anyway, they got on, and then the weather turned really bad. from bad to worse. <laughs> yeah.
0: And um, had, had your training... Prepared you for that for those kind of conditions? No, I, I don't
2: think anybody could have
0: been prepared for that. I mean, they knew
2: it would be bad, but they didn't know it was going to be that bad. I mean, as soon as it's 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 dark, your tent has been blown away. There's a hundred mile an hour gale, freezing in your face. You're disoriented. You know, I I I think it was it was miraculous that but that we managed to get them get them off.
1: They survived the night. Even oh, they survived yeah. the night. We, we, we were offshore trying to maintain station. It was really, really bad, unbelievably bad, the seas. Huge, mountainous, and this is on the shelter
2: side of uh, South Georgia. and I may say it was so bad that the captain at one stage, he said, if, if there's anybody who would like to see this sea state, can you come up a couple at a time? He says, and tell your grandchildren about this. He'd been at sea for th- 20 years or so, and he'd never seen anything like it. And, you know, we all thought it was... Spectacular! We didn't realise the danger that we were in. Serious light. Oh, I certainly didn't. There <laughs> was. I, I was watching this wave up here, you know, and it was like a roller coaster. The next thing you're looking down here, you know, you're on top of that wave. That's just and and that's
1: on the lee side of the island. It's on the shelter side of the island, yeah. and that was the you know. Meanwhile, the, you know, the, these huge the, the ship was shrieking with the wind. Up, you could hear it. And I can remember going past this. There was a plate on one of the sort of central passageways sort of thing that said, "You know, built by." Uh, the governor shipyard, you know, and I thought, well, I hope they got the rivets right. And um, the poor thing was being, you know, really pounded. It wasn't a young well, a thousand foot up, you got the mountain troop, you know, even worse conditions. And we knew what was like likely to happen the following day. And it did. We got they called to take them off. They had lost equipment. They were in a dangerous state. They were facing cold casualties. And we all know that once you start going down, well, then you know you take you get your first casualty. You know that. Probably everybody else is about to go down as well. They had to come off, and then's when the, the, the real heroism starts. Ian Stanley and his crew, with Chris Perry down the back, who is a mate, lead the helicopter off to go and get them off. Uh, I can't remember how many times they have to try it, but they eventually make it. Um, load load up, start to come off the glacier. The first helicopter crashes. They pick up then everybody the second helicopter crashes. We're now down to one helicopter. One helicopter, which is optimized. It's only got one engine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and it's an anti-submarine warfare helicopter. It's got no room in it. You know, there's, you can just about squeeze another few people in the back. Pick up what they can, take them back to Antrim, mother. And Chris actually says, as if flying flying back they get down to sea level with the with whatever survivors we got and he comes up on the radio and tells Antrim that um they've just lost their two chicks i think he calls them just lost their two chicks mm-hmm. as he's returning to mother and they know what that means um anyway he drops them off and then after a while tries to tries to um, go back and eventually goes back to see what he can do about the others and uh, they manage to get to the, to the base of the glacier it's not going to work the weather's really come in, and the winds are right up again, and so the and the day's running out uh, so he decides to change a plan amongst the crew they all are involved they're all on the all on the and they yes they'll do this, and they go vertically upwards through the cloud which is relatively thin, but they go up above it, get up to about two thousand feet, and there's glorious sunshine on the top there, looking down cloud below, and they're trying to find a gap so. And eventually a gap emerges and lo and behold, they actually see the helicopter down there and they dive down. And this is the, uh, if that's not uh, spectacular enough, well, this is the, free, the fleet air arm at its best. Fantastic. They then load everybody and I think it's 17 people if I got the numbers right and and our survivors. Helicopter.
2: And a helicopter that's, that's supposed it's to carry himself. four.
1: It <laughs> <laughs> can barely lift itself with its four man crew and its kit. And he flies it. You know, in the moment he starts, he knows he can't hover. He can barely get it off the uh, the glacier. But the winds are very strong, and actually that gives a, it encourages him to give it a go because it's it's giving him lift, and he just manages to get this poor helicopter off the off the glacier, and down, and then goes out to sea. And I by the you know I'm standing on the back of Antrim at this stage and sort of you know watching them. I can see her emerge out of the mist, and you can see that it's struggling. Uh, it's barely above the waves, and you normally come to the back of a ship and come to one side and then move across, and it gives you options. You know if anything goes wrong. Ian couldn't do that. He couldn't hover it at all. He just came in and smacked it on the ground and 17 people come out there.
0: Yeah. Unreal. He's a hero. Yeah. And so not no enemy has been spotted. Nope. Um, how many casualties have you taken so far?
1: Well, fortunately, none really. I mean, there's uh, a lot of early indications of cold injury, the begin- beginnings of frostbite and that sort of stuff. But everybody makes a recovery. We got them off in good time. Mm. Another, another night out, we might have lost them,
0: yeah. and, and you, they survived the helicopter crash then I mean, presume yeah, yes, yeah
1: <laughs> well, actually, I mean, to be fair, and that this is the skill of the pilots i mean they um, you know as they take off they 're hit by these high winds which are carrying snow and so on, and then they go into white out conditions it 's like peering through milk. You know, they're, they're completely disorientated. And the, um, here's an interesting thing. The, the helicopters that crashed are, are one up. There's one pilot in the cab. Nobody in the left-hand seat or the right-hand, whichever one it is. They're, they're on their own. They don't know whether they look out or look at the instruments or both at the, try, try do both at the same time. Um, almost inevitably, I suppose, under those conditions, this happens. But they, they are skilled, and they prevent um, these crashes from being catastrophic uh, with, with their skill. So yeah, okay. So we lost the helicopters, but they didn't lose the people. Um, and We're feeling pretty bad about this because here, here we are now. Not only have we bounced off and failed to get our wreck again,
2: but we've we'd
1: we've caused less. the loss of two helicopters.
2: Yeah, we'd more or less said we can do this, this, and they trusted us, and we felt in some way we had let them down. And but but thanked our lucky stars and our gods, etc., that um, that it wasn't. It could have been a lot worse. And we we were all we were all, and we were all up and bad. running and if you think that's
1: bad, then what happens is that uh that very day we got them back onto Antrim late afternoon. it's beginning to get dark in the meantime we'd warned off Ted inshaw uh <laughs> 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 the boat troop commander um that he's gonna he's now on make a plan with the navigator and others whilst we sort out this mess, which he's done, and uh he then sort of um, puts puts his plan to us. That that very evening, so we've suffered this. Uh, you know, this uh, that's worth noting. You know, we we we're carrying on. i are mean, feeling pretty bad about things. And here's the other good thing too: is that the the navy don't point any accusing mm. fingers. It, it, they're really good about it. don't say you bloody lost our helicopters or, or they had every right to do that, but they didn't. No, not they, they're them not, them they're not. They're not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're not going to lay on the pressure unnecessary. That can come later. And nor did Guy, God bless him. You know, everybody's just sort of, well, that wasn't very good. We'll just try something else. Anyway, Ted wants to take the boats in the front door, straight in at the front doors of Stromness Bay. And I said, well, you know, we ruled that out. Um, Can't you go around the back? Can't go around the back. And the next bay up, I can't remember what it's called, now, Fortuna Bay or something like that. It's got kelp in it. It's got ice in it. He's going to have to go in the front. And again, here's another remarkable thing: the weather has actually improved, and that is the plan we go with. We're going to slip Antrim in, the front door, and put the boats over the side, and they're then going to go off into into the bay. And um, the weather is just it's just. I mean, the seas are like a mill pond now. Yeah, oh, it's it's unreal, isn't it? Um, so dear old Antrim, and they're very confident they can get away with it. Uh, slip in. Uh, you'll my moonlight type stuff and they slip into strongness bay the boats go over the other side it's just like as i say like a mill pond. you can hear the the water just lapping against the hull and they're taking a bit of time to get over the side or or to get the engines working over the, over the side and poor old Antrim's beginning to drift it's ever so slowly towards some rocks over the way still no sort of can't get on with it from the navy they're just I see cool, aren't they? Really really impressive the Navy, I tell you, big time. And uh, <laughs> although we're giving them all this grief. Ted down there can only get two engines working out of five. <laughs> Antrim's drifting towards rocks. And to say, Come on, we've got to get on with this. And the end he says, Look, just go. I'll tow them in which we do. So Antrim turns herself on a sixpence. With some more sort of skill from the Royal Navy, and slide their way out of Stromness Bay. I'm on the bridge wing, you know, anxiously looking down. They disappeared, and I feel this slight breeze on the nape of my neck, and I knew that's not good, you know, because it's coming from behind. Any breeze should come from the front. And two minutes later, three minutes later, catabatic winged. It pounds down through the bay, and from a mill pond, you're up to about six foot waves, and here he is
2: with his paddles. <laughs> You yeah. know, working out of five, two you know, trying to. I mean, I don't know what the ratio is, what the <laughs> but even even with good conditions, you know, that wouldn't work, but it certainly didn't work. And uh, they two boats went adrift, and that's what they were doing trying to paddle ashore.
1: Yeah, so to abbreviate this, Ted does get ashore, he does get eyes on, and he's the information starts flowing back, but in the process, we've lost two boats. Don't know where they are. The following morning, dear old Humphrey goes up again. Uh, Brian Young, is the captain of Antrim and the task group commander, allows Humphrey to go out to have a look for these missing boats. And Chris does some sums. I mean, he's clever, Chris. He becomes an admiral eventually. And they sort of work out where, where they look. Now, I always imagined until I spoke to Chris, very recently, and writing the book, that actually they found Chippy Carpenter's boat. Uh, he really is called Chippy Carpenter, <laughs> Chippy's boat, about you know a number of miles down the coast, a couple of miles offshore. I discovered that I actually picked up Chippy, 62 miles offshore, and they got out there in about an eight to ten hour period. So you can work out the sums yourself. I mean they're moving fast with this wind, but here's the most remarkable thing That's, about it.
0: So is Chippy still in the boat? Chippy,
1: Chippy Carpenter and his other and his crew are in this. Gemini with no engine, and they're 62 miles offshore when they're found, mm-hmm. and and here
2: on their way to South Africa.
1: Well, well they might hit South Africa. It could be even <laughs> further around. Um, but they're you know they're facing the prospect of a lonely death, and I stress that because Chippy has heard a helicopter for a while, doing its sort of uh, search, going back and forth, and uh, he has a a Sarby rescue beacon on him, but he doesn't open up on that because he's not sure it's not enemy. Mm. And then they catch sight, and, and Chris will tell you that they're just about to give up because they're running short of fuel and they must go back and give up the search. They haven't found anything. Chibi so just catches sight of uh, Humphrey at, at that moment. He comes out of a f- fog bank, and they recognize it as a Wessex, and they know that Wessex is us. And only at that stage does he open up the Sabi beacon, and then they, of course, their helicopter got it straight away, and dives in and rescues them. But if he hadn't done that, he would have been out at well,
0: he would have died out there.
1: I mean, that is um, a calculated and cool courage.
0: So, I think I'm feeling better about my own chaotic life. That the fact <laughs> that the most highly trained elite military unit on earth basically has had the most catastrophic start. Be- beginning start to this campaign. I mean, I think that's there's a lesson there for everyone, and it, it reminds me of the old Churchill misquote that success is about. Staggering from failure to failure With no loss of enthusiasm Is that, is that how you guys felt When you just, you've just just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other Have you? That's exactly it the,
2: the, the, There was no way that All the way through the campaign I think we, we were doing that You know if it went right We would just sort of pat each other on the back And say well that was good wasn't it Yeah that went okay But if it didn't go right Then you know we'd regroup and, and try it again And we come out the other side I
1: think I think I make an adjustment as well. Actually, which we, mean, we should have sort of been obvious to me before. But um, you're concentrating on confounding the enemy. But you, you made me realize actually we could confound ourselves if we weren't bloody careful. I mean, we had just put the entire operation at risk, big time. If you, you know, if it had been really dramatic loss of life at the same time as loss of helicopters, I mean, that was not a good start to any campaign. And this, and it was tenuous at that point, you know. And if that had got out, then. But could it have damaged National William. It
0: might have done. How old, how old were you? Oh, 30.
1: I don't know. Young. <laughs> Young.
0: And, and did, I mean, how did you, on a personal level, cope with that extraordinary? I mean, anxiety. Were you able to sleep? I mean, how? There was a lot resting on your shoulders.
1: Well, in all the way, we, were, but we actually draw strength from on one another, actually. Uh, so. Yeah, you just sort of get through it. But I, I would stress this again. You know, mm-hmm. there was no recriminations, neither from Guy Sheridan, the Marines, nor the Navy at this
2: time. They had every right. <laughs> every right. They didn't. Leon, um, the Leon, it's only, only looking. Sorry, it's it's only looking back on it that I realised You know, what a close run thing it was. Because all the time, okay, we met setback after setback. But okay, well, you know, we'll do it this way next time. We'll do it that way next time. There was no time that we turned around and said. You know this. This can't be done. You know, and and uh, there was no at no time did we doubt each other. I think that that that's that's part of our training, I suppose, that we can be very proud of, because when, ev- when anybody was asked to step up to the line, they did. You know, in spades. I think I think that
1: was across the task force, uh, yeah. and and later when we we joined the Toronto task force proper, that sort of confidence. I, I think we were always going to win it's extraordinary they're yeah. uh, always going to win we we couldn't possibly lose yeah. uh, you know we went through uh we went through a, you know a few evolutions on that i think uh, the navy in particular were you know very confident and then when they lost sheffield later on uh, there was a mood change in the task force mm. then you know they just became more quietly determined in their determination on their uh, <laughs> their confidence of winning you know it came a slightly different sort of uh confidence but they were always confident um it was less whatever the Word might be, and then and then things continue on. Well, um, well, what happens next? Um, What happens next is you know we become more aware of the Argentinians. Aircraft turn up, um, C-130s and Boeings in sort of surveillance role. So something's up. Endurance hears what can only be
2: a a transmission from a submarine. So a submarine's turned up in the area. And then I'd say that gets your undivided attention when you're sitting in six six foot waves and not knowing what your next move's going to be,
1: and the navy become you know they're they're after a submarine, and you know they they have no time for anything else <laughs> they are after the submarine, I think they have a word for it search to destruction, I think it's called and they're going to find this thing and they're going to destroy it. But it's the only option with a submarine. You can't take a submarine prisoner. You you know, you have to find it and you have to destroy it. It's bloody harsh business. And, that, and actually, that's another observation too. I think, you know, all warfare is sort of hard-edged, but naval warfare is particularly hard-edged. And if it goes wrong, it goes catastrophically wrong. You know, the whole bloody ship goes or something. Now, anyway, there's, this sort of thing is very apparent in their search to destruction. They're going to find this bloody submarine. And... And uh, the, extraordinary, the extraordinary, extraordinary thing in this actually is, uh, is that somehow, somewhere, somebody's have worked out. They knew, I think, when the submarine had left Argentina, and yes, likely sorry. to ter- yeah, it's together, extraordinary. It? They sort of they'd worked out, out this thing had left, and then they worked out this so endurance. They're very c- clever at the squiggly stuff, you know. They, you know, they sort of they've picked up on a radio there was a one transmission this poor submarine had to make because they were having problems as well, and they calculate that this submarine will be coming out of Cumberland Bay the following morning at such and such a time, having done such and such to a brief on story they go into anti submarine mode they work out what they 're doing captain young and you know they 're now in the full full bore naval warfare without any complications from the bloody s a s This is their business now um, <laughs> They move, they move um, their RFA away with the, uh, the tanking, the, uh, the, the refueling air ship um, with the Marine Company on it. They get that out of way. it goes, almost 200 miles away, I think, mm. and then concentrate on this, on this submarine. Humphrey is put up to go and look in Cumberland Bay the following morning. Uh, brilliant has joined us. Uh, Sandy Woodward realises we're short of helicopters, short of anti-submarine uh, warfare ships, so he sends one of the best, brilliant, a captain by Sam Carter, who we love we we've we, we learn um a great man, and um her helicopters do another bit of South Georgia anyway, again to abbreviate this story, lo and behold, following morning, Humphrey finds a submarine coming out of such such time out of Cumberland Bay and attacks it with second world war death charges <laughs> blow it up um this turns around and the whole operation's changed. There's no need for all this careful reconnaissance on you know there's is this that decisive moment thing people talk about
0: so the Argentinians are now aware that you are sitting offshore they, we attack
1: this submarine um in the, in the in the mouth of Cumberland Bay they can hear it going on and the submarine turns around tries to get back into Great Vick and comes around the corner in full view of Great Vick and the Argentine garrison they see helicopters swarming all over this poor Submarine. It's been attacked by Humphrey with the depth charges. The, there are some, uh, couple, uh, the, the ones from Brilliant, they, they've dropped a torpedo and that and didn't quite get it, but they're, they're now attacking it with everything else they can. I mean, pilots have even drawn pistols from their holsters, how so I go, <laughs> and that's on their area. endurance's um, and Plymouth's um, wasps turn up and they, they attack it with missiles. There's all this that's happening in front of Group Vickham. It's, it, you know, the Argentinians are, you know, shocked, I would guess. And we recognize that they would be. And there, so there's this decisive moment thing. And I I was on the uh, the lower bridge of Antrim at this time. Because, you, you know, we're over, almost over the horizon somewhere, sort of racing forward. And there was a moment when the battle ensigns cracked out. And no one needed to tell, tell me what that meant we're <laughs> engaging the enemy. <laughs> away you go. Um, no man will do anything wrong, but you'll lay, lay your ship alongside. No, and We're dashing in down on this sort of thing. It's like something out of a Second World War movie, really. And... um. I'm with a naval, naval officer. He says, this changes everything. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what do you mean it changes everything? He said, we've got them now. They, you know, they're reeling. They're the well, why are we doing all this reconnaissance stuff? We don't need to do this. We need to attack them. I said, oh, yeah, but you know, we need to know a little bit more. And I slip into staff college in you know, a careful mode. <laughs> and then I realized after a few minutes of this patronizing stuff to this naval officer, shit, he's right. <laughs> you know, We've got to go. And, uh, you're, you're, I'm, not, I'm not claiming to recognise the decisive overture. I think the naval officer did. And I was taking a guy Sheridan, and he may or may not have been having the same thoughts. But the fact is, that we, you know, we need to go in, and that's what we did. Unfortunately, the, the Royal Marines that should be doing it are not there.
0: I feel we had the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours,
1: our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished.
0: One child, one
2: teacher, one book, and one pen can change the
0: world. He tells us what is possible not just in the pages of history books, but in our own
2: lives as well. I have faith in you.